Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises, so you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg. Member SIPC. What an open at Royal Portrush. Great win there by Shane Lowry. Lots of stuff happened from uh, Rory missing the cut, Tiger missing the cut, to the equipment testing, Ricky with another top five finish. Uh, So we had uh, Jeff Ogilvie came back on to talk a little bit about the week and what's ahead on the PGA Tour calendar with the WGC Memphis and as well as the FedEx Cup playoffs and kind of riff into a lot of different ideas about the playoffs and uh, the schedule. So here's Jeff Ogilvy. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. He was nails. He was. He was nails. That first hole was the whole tournament on Sunday. Like it was. I mean, if he misses that putt and Fleetwood makes his putt, it'd be a hard win from there if you lose three on the first hole in a day like that. But uh, that putt was like, wow, he's up for this, you know, because the first hole was nervy, you know, nervy tee shot. Like, nervy, good bunker shot, really. It's a hard bunker shot and a great putt, but it's, like, eight feet short. It's like, holy, wow, this guy's going to make double on the first. But, yeah, he did well. I mean, what pressure. Can you imagine what he was feeling? I was, think, I was thinking about it. It's, I, I find in my golf, like, when I get in situated, like, because of what happened at Oakmont where he blew the, the four-shot lead, uh-huh. like, the next time around, it almost always works out when you when you have something that just kills you. That's what I was. I mean, the media kept running. Oh, can he get past the ghosts of the thing? It's like almost every single time someone loses one of those long, uh, those big leads in a major on a Sunday, they do better the next time. Like Mike Weir went for eighty at Madonna when Tiger and Sergio went for the thing. Two years later, he's winning the Masters. You know. There's like, how many stories of a guy tanking on a Sunday and the next time they get their chance, they take it. Happens all the time, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember I uh, I came back in a, in a match once and I forced a playoff, like a crazy comeback. And then I like, you know, I don't know if you ever had this happen. Like you're going to the playoff and you almost feel like you, you did what you, this giant thing. And mm-hmm. and you lose focus. I hit a bad drive on that first playoff hole, lost the playoff, and I was like, "Well, that was terrible," you know. And uh, and then the next time that happened, like when I was walking to the playoff tee, I was just like, "Just you got to hit a good drive," you know. Mm-hmm. It, it was funny, like because then the next time it it worked out, per you know, I, and I win. I um. I was I got the last grip of the Victorian Open, which was a pro event. 
I don't know, 90. I was 18, I think, and shot 78 in the last round. Still finished like fifth or something because it was a tough day, but shot 78. And then the next time I was there, I shot like one under or something. I was leading the year later or something in the big open in the last group, and I shot like one under in the last round. So I like got way better at it. The first time you deal with it, oh, it's tough. And four shots in a major, it's like, especially at Oakmont, give me a break. I mean, I mean, 10 shots isn't enough at Oakmont. Um, it's I mean, that'd be the hardest course in the world to keep a lead. I mean, I think Aaron Baddeley, the time before when Cabrera won, he had a three-shot lead starting Sunday, and he tripled the first, which you can do without really doing a whole lot wrong at Oakmont, and all of a sudden your lead's gone. It's tough. Those big leads are a bit more over. It's almost easier to have. The only time I ever had a really big lead was at Kapalua, and that it was uncomfortable. And that's Kapalua. It's a cruising tournament. Major. After eight holes, I was only one in front. It was, and I was freaking out. It was hard. Hard. It's a weird thing having a big lead. It's almost sometimes it's almost better. I feel like to be like one back than in the lead, even. Certainly for your sleep the night before and your kind of level of comfort and kind of you haven't won anything. You haven't achieved anything yet if you're one behind. But if you're six in front or four in front or something, it's like you've kind of it's on you now, you know, like you actually have to play well. <laughs> How was it for you when you had a lead sleeping on a lead? Like everybody talks about it. You know, I, I obviously it's probably a pretty personal experience for each player. Nobody's the same. I am relatively, was relatively relaxed about stuff like that, but um, I still didn't sleep properly ever. Like, it's tough. Um, as I said, the Kapaloo was the only the big lead I had. I had six, I think. I didn't sleep properly. It was, it's a long morning and it's a long night and you're just thinking about all the stuff. And um, I think guys are worse. I wasn't that nervous, I don't think, but obviously I was a little bit because I didn't sleep the same. I was certainly very happy once I got on the golf course. Once I'd got that first tee or played the first hole and got on the second, I feel like I was kind of all right. But that time, his night must have been rough. And he's honest. How nice was he? He just comes out and says, yeah, I didn't sleep very well. And I got up early and I had to talk to my coach. And I think it's... people gravitate to him because of his honesty. Yeah, he uh, the way he... I mean, like he was talking about it on Friday. He's like, "Yeah, I'm trying to win this Claire Jug. Like, this is not easy, you know." Yeah, right. Like, I mean, he was he was so bluntly honest. It was it's. It, I think that's like one of the things they take away from this. Like he uh, he had some quotes um, last year about how awful because he, he, he played so bad last year at, at Carnoustie, and he was like sitting in his car like mad about you know where he was but he was he he talked to the press about how much oakmont had ruined him for like a year and a half did he really yeah i mean he's the the quotes i wish i had him pulled up i had him pulled up the other day but uh they uh i mean he talked about how it pretty much ruined his golf game for like a year and a half losing that thing because he felt like he was the number one player in the world for three days and then he started to play conservative he talked about he laid up on two when he could have driven it up there and he was playing to protect the lead rather than playing to win mm-hmm. and that was a those quotes were a year ago not you know before or during this championship that's the hard part right i think you give yourself the win before you've won right kind of like it's yours to lose now when you're leading 
a little bit. Overnight, at least. I mean, maybe not if you get in the lead on the third hole, like, you know, it's the middle of the round. But if you go to bed with a four-shot lead, you've kind of, like, visualized that trophy sitting on your counter and visualized all the stuff that's coming with it. Like, you've kind of given it to yourself a little bit. Now it's mine to, to protect. You're protecting something a little bit. And golf, you never play well when you protect, right? And you kind of try not to mess up. That doesn't work. It's it's why the best rounds are always when like your flurry of birdies comes at the end. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, my first great major, I finished fifth at St Andrews. I birdied uh in oh five. I finished fifth I birdied fifteen, sixteen, sorry, fifteen, seventeen, eighteen on Sunday. I went from like fourteenth to fifth or something. It's like, oh, I had top ten in a major, but it's like I was never near the top ten right, ever until I mean, I probably passed 10 people by birdieing 17 on Sunday. So it was like, it looked great, but I, I mean, I was 10th last group. It was about as close as I got to the last group. Um, but that, and then the next major, Baltus Roll, I finished. All of a sudden, I thought, oh, I'm a top 10 major guy. And I played Baltus Roll really well and sort of sat in the top 10 all week and finished fifth or sixth again. I was like, oh, well, now I've got this worked out. But the first top 10 was nothing. It, it was a top 10 without any pressure at all, really. Yeah. It was a back do- backdoor. Backdoor. Yeah, backdoor. How how do you, as pro as a like, and as a pro and then also like, other pros like, backdoor top tens like media always talks about back. Oh, he you know he just king of backdoor top tens. Like, is it a top ten to top ten or is there, you know, is, do you feel better about the one that you're around all the time? I always felt better about the backdoor one because it feels like uh, you you got the most out of the week. You got the most out of like an average week. Like the average week, you finish in 25th, you birdie, I don't know, three of the last four and you finish fifth. It's like I was finished in 20th all week and I stole a few there on the last few holes, right? I always liked that. Or you shoot 65 from middle of the field and you finish eighth or something or seventh. It's like, that was satisfying because I feel like you got so much more out of the week than you probably should have. But the one where you sit top 10 all week and then you double 17 and finish 18th, that is the worst. There's nothing worse than that. Having a great week all week and you're two good holes away from finishing top two or three or winning or something and you have a double and you finish 18th or something and those really condensed ones, that's depressing. That's really frustrating because you put so much work into the tournament. It's like it all comes unraveled on one bad swing or three part or something. It's pretty frustrating so it works both ways the uh so with the with the tournament i mean you alluded to it a little bit with uh you know lowry kind of put it put it away pretty early but like i i mean we've talked about this a lot with augusta and and how how good championship courses separate the field like do you feel like a great championship course can sometimes lead to less drama than a mediocre one that keeps everybody around? Oh, 100%, certainly. I mean, somehow Augusta manages to create the drama, right? But I think great courses like St. Andrews, quite often there's no drama in the last five, six holes that they open at St. Andrews because the guy who's winning is, like, separating so much. You know, Tiger's come up the last eight or nine shots in front a couple of times. Um, I don't know. It's a bit of both. I think it's both. I, mean, I just think that's the randomness of golf and who plays well that week. And I certainly think uh, weather like Sunday at the Open uh, stops the drama a little bit. 
you know, because it spreads. So many guys have a bad day, right, on a day like that. There's just going to be less people up there. Yeah. It, That's what it, I, say, but I might be wrong. But. It seemed like there was uh, no faking it out there on Sunday. I mean, we've all been out there on days like that. Those seaside courses, I mean, a five-mile-an-hour wind is like a 10-mile-an-hour wind under the seaside, right, because it's so heavy because it's off the ocean and then the rain and you're, and you're wearing so many clothes and the grass gets so dense in the rough and the ball goes short. Yeah, it's tough. And you're so exposed. There's no trees. You can't go hide under a tree, right? You're just you're just getting hit. You end up lying up against sand dunes and stuff when it gets bad. I mean, like it, it was so funny because you know Westwood's got his uh, got his girlfriend caddy in for him, and he talked about it like two days before about you know she doesn't know that much about golf, but that's not a big deal. And then like you see a out like a torrential downpour, and you're like, well, this is maybe where uh, experienced caddy could help a little bit more keeping everything right. dry and everything and <laughs> he didn't even have a rain jacket it was just i was like oh god this is just the that had to be just brutal out there that day um what did you think of port rush wow it looked incredible right i mean it's uh i heard nothing but good reports it looked it mean, looked amazing it looked uh seemed like a perfect venue really i mean they just love it to the irish right it's just their they just froth on sporting events. It's just their thing. And they're strong and go. And they had like three or four, like what, well, and probably two realistic contenders that they thought of with McDowell and McElroy, like the favorite of the tournament. And they got Larry and Harrington and they got a great cast. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I thought that the scale of it was just, it, in a way, it kind of, it kind of felt to me a little bit like, um, the opens version of like Shinnecock because of the topography and the way the greens repel. It just looked like it demanded really, you couldn't get away with anything, but if you did play well, it looked like there was good scores there, but it looked like you had to play really well. But I mean, it- it's uh the the way the greens kind of run off. I thought that you know small targets and everything. Is it that's to me the the key to testing you guys is like there's got to be ways to you know like great shots were really great shots out there and good shots were just good, you know. Mhm. Yeah, I mean how about that first hole? How would you like a first tee? I don't know if it's fair to have out of bounds on the side both sides of the first fairway. Like I know that it's not supposed to be fair and all that, but one getting the field away when every third guy's reloading. And two like I mean just pumping into the wind and you could see they were all just like backboarding irons and just trying to sneak it on the front edge of the fairway cuz just get it between the white posts. I mean that's about the most brutal first tee shot I've ever seen. Like incredible. I I don't know, are they just internal out of bounds too, right? Yeah, they're internal. Well, I guess they didn't own the land originally. So now they own it, but it's still out of bounds. I know Shackleford was was just so mad about it. But, I mean, did you see Darren Clark? He got up there the first first morning, just pulled out driver. Just Just, got bush. Just ripped (laughs) it right down. I mean, that was like the, I thought like, it was so funny because like that first tee shot, I'm like, oh, it's a driver hole, you know? And then the rest of the week, only irons off that tee. 
I mean, I kind of like the out of bounds on one side, like the Presswick thing, or the, I mean, a kind of a tighter version of like St Andrews kind of thing with out of bounds on one hole. But give a guy if he wants to just bail it and hit a really weak kind of conservative tee shot, let the guy do that, right? If he's kind of making the hole really hard for himself, but out of bounds on both sides with two twenty to the fairway or something, and that. <laughs> so, I'm glad yeah. I didn't have to do that. Yeah, it's just uh, it's it's a scary, scary shot. It's probably the hardest tee shot on the course, right off the bat. I, imagine, I mean, I can't imagine there's a harder one. I mean, there was out of bounds is just the ultimate penalty, right? Because it's just add one and start again. Like it's tough. It's pretty much the worst way to start a tournament, without a doubt. Getting it out, getting it out of bounds. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's uh. So you know, like Ricky, another. High finish for Ricky. Finau starting to rack up these high finishes. Fleetwood. What um, what do you think about guys that come close a lot? But like, because like, I mean, everybody's always like, "Is Ricky gonna do it?" And and now people are saying, "Well, is Fleetwood the new Ricky?" It's like you know, to me, sometimes it's half luck, but like that the ball bounces the right way. But like you know, even Westwood's a perfect example. A guy that's been there so many times. That when does experience start to turn into a bad thing in majors? More, I don't know. I guess scar tissue. I mean, I guess guys like Westwood and Sergio eventually developed a bit of scar tissue, right? Um, Sergio ended up beating it, but they had a lot of Sundays that didn't go their way. And I guess, whereas Tiger, every time he was on a Sunday, he would win, right? And he'd get in the last group. So he had like the opposite of that. He had just, bulletproof confidence i don't know i don't think so i think the more times you're there generally the better off you're going to be the next time or the more comfortable uh, it certainly would be helpful for guys if they closed the deal the first time they were up there you know because <laughs> then the next few times it would be easy right like it becomes a thing there's such a weight from the there is i mean there's such a stress from the golf world on this uh major thing they make people feel like they need to win it or they're not a real golfer. It's like, well, hang on a minute. I mean, Fleetwood's a pretty real golfer. You know, Ricky Fowler's a pretty real golfer. Like, like, what if they don't win one in the end? I mean, they're good enough too, and if they do, that'd be great. But it's not the end of the world. And But it's put it's put to these people like it's the end of the world. And so they, the guys who carry that sort of stuff, like a guy like Dustin obviously doesn't carry that, you know. But other guys... Sergio obviously carried it quite heavy and Lee carried it quite heavy and even like Phil and Duval and that before they won guys like that, they were carrying it pretty heavy before they got it done. Um, it's a tough deal. There's enough self-inflicted pressure. Um, but outside of that, uh, Ricky, I think Ricky's too good to not get it done at one point. He just, he doesn't have a weakness as a golfer physically. He's an unbelievable ball striker. Plenty long enough, great iron player, ridiculous short game, and he's everyone wants to putt like Ricky. I mean, he has everything. And he obviously has the ability to finish the deal because he's won a bunch of tournaments. And the way he won that Players' Championship, which is probably the hardest finishing stretch or the most penal finishing stretch we play regularly. I mean, he just, I mean, he's birdied 17 three times in a row in the last round of the playoff, and he'd drive it down the eight. I mean, this is a guy who knows what to do under pressure, right? He can get it done. So maybe it's just a matter of, you know, just putting it all together in one week. It's a, it's a compliment that he's always there, you know, 
and there's like it's hard to be there. That's the thing is like there's only, you know, I think Brooks said this in that press conference where he talked about like how there's only so many guys that a major he has to beat. And Ricky, like, there's only so many guys that can finish in the top five of a major regularly. Like, you might get hot one week and finish up there, but, like, you know, how? I mean, there can't be more than a dozen guys that could regularly finish top five in any major you put them in. Nah, there can't be many. I mean, there's, like, ten, right? There's the obvious ones. I mean, you can see Bubba having a year where he's up there, Adam having a year where he's up there a lot, Brooks, Dustin, Rory. Rose. You're running out of people. Rose, Stenson in his time, but probably not at the moment. You know, like that consistently, it's a pretty high level getting the top five in a major. I mean, Ricky's always in the last two or three groups on the Sunday, it seems like. So I can't imagine he's not going to get it done. And Tommy, what Tommy did at Shinnecock last year and the Ryder Cup, he's clearly not, he's clearly very capable under pressure, right? That shot he hit at 18 at Shinnecock to shoot, to maybe shoot 62 was, that was a proper golf shot. Um, and, and at that point, and at that point, it really felt like he could win this tournament by three or four. Chinnikov finishing that early, so I mean, I think he'll get it done too. I think Ricky's been up there a lot more than Tommy, hasn't he? I feel like way, way more. It's I found this crazy stat in the since 2014, Ricky is one of three players that hasn't fallen outside of the top 15 ever in the world rankings. It's him. So that's- Rose and uh, I can't remember the third one. It's not Dustin. It's uh, can't remember, but it's he's. I mean, it's crazy. The consistency is insane. As I say, he doesn't have a weakness. Like as a golfer, um, I mean, you can go in between the ears, and I mean, that's an unmeasurable. But um, from tee to green and around the greens, he just he doesn't have a weakness. He's probably arguably top to bottom one of the best golfers. Because he just doesn't, he just hits, does everything well, and he seems to love the links, and he travels around the world, and he plays interesting tournaments, and like he's all good. I, I can't see him not like getting it done at some point, but maybe not. Maybe he's just, uh, it's not a matter of skill. Maybe it's a bit of timing and luck, like you say, forces that suit his eye that week. You know, maybe he had Lowry like on a this uh, on a run of emotion that's. Hard to beat, you know. When guys like St- Lowry tap into something like that, you see those stories. That's it seemed inevitable after a while. And that Saturday when he was finished in those last few holes, it's just the inevitability of it. It was like, wow, that's how do you beat that? You know. So you can't run in. You run into that a few times, and it's not really on you. And you run into Brooks Kepka the last couple of years, and that's pretty hard to beat, you know. So they'll get it done. It's a great conversation, though. The best player to not win a major. I think it's ridiculous, but I think it's a great conversation. Yeah, I was like, so I started to think about like guy like Ricky and like how he compares and because like the the number like how do you how do you value a top five in a major like what's is what's more impressive winning the John Deere or coming fifth in a major? Uh, again, how do you measure that? But I think you have to like take a. Like, what is success as a professional golfer? I mean, success as a golfer is someone who doesn't have a real job, who gets to play golf every day of his life, and he doesn't have to worry about money otherwhere else, right? That's success. He gets to play golf whenever he wants. Ricky Fowler is about 
as successful as you can possibly get by that metric to like have anything out there that's you would if he ends without a major that that was a failure it's like hang on a minute he's got 100 million in the bank he's had an unbelievable life he's never sat at a desk and he played golf every day of his life how is that not success you know so i think it's kind of they're, they're amazing to win and he's good enough to win and history will be look at him better if he does all these guys if they do but i don't know you're playing golf every day of your life and you're getting paid that's pretty good and everybody loves you he's going all right <laughs> yeah yeah that's like kind of where i'm going with this idea is like you know like i think like a, a top five in a major is probably the same as winning a you know same level of achievement as winning a regular event so it's like people like to bag on Ricky because he's only got six major wins. But, you know, the number of top five finishes in majors is just extraordinary. See, to me, the joy of the job was always the being in contention, you know, the having a chance, the last nine holes and feeling all that that goes with that and just being in the mix. He gets that every week. He has fun almost every week because he's always in the mix you know, or somewhat near the mix. To me, that's the fun. And I mean, the winning is obviously great and everything that comes with it. But the real enjoyment for me came out of, and a lot of guys will say that. Tiger always said that. He loved just being in it. Like, it's just, that's the fun part. Like that that high pressure situation when guys are playing well and you're all just doing your stuff. That's my favorite part. And he gets to do that all the time. So on some level, he's He's scratching the itch that he had when he was young that I just want to get on TV and I want to compete against the best and I just want to like play well in the biggest tournaments. He's doing that, you know. We've turned into talking about Ricky, but we'll say he as in the guys who contend all the time and haven't been winning them, they'll win them. And if they don't, I don't think it's the end of the world. It'd be great for them if they do and they're good enough if they can, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's a little bit overblown. I think it's an amazing thing and I think majors are great and you should have benchmarks in sports you know you really should but it doesn't mean it's failure if it's not black and white you know there's a lot of success that you can have in sport and golf without winning a major i think as as golf as like statistics become more and more prevalent in golf i think that what pe- what will get valued more is is like a, some guy somebody that has one major win versus somebody that has no major wins and 20 top fives like that that's going to shift a little bit, you know, where people aren't just mm-hmm. going to be like, well, he's got a major, you know, and he doesn't. That's I think that's changing. With I the way it probably should. I mean, it probably should. I mean, it, from some metrics, Sam Snead was a better player than Jack Nicholas. He won 90 tournaments and did it. And he won in his 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Like, I mean, that's pretty outrageous. Um, He was good for 50 years. You know, I mean, that's obviously he's not, but he enjoyed his time along the way. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's uh, there's only four of them a year, and there's only, and there's 150 or so, 200 guys trying. I mean, can't share them around that much. Now for a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Bedratty. Bedratty makes some of the most comfortable golf shirts on the planet, and they got even better thanks to their new monogram program, which lets you put your initials on their world-famous Liam Polo. The Liam Polo is the original polo that uh, put Bedratty on the map. It is a solid-knit polo made from some of the softest Peruvian Pima cotton. This shirt is incredibly soft, and it's even got a little bit of stretch in it, so... 
one of the most comfortable shirts to wear, not only on the golf course, but off the golf course as well. So to get into the monogram program, all you got to do is go to bedraddy.com and it's right there on the homepage. And uh, I can't recommend this shirt enough. It's uh, I've got one. It's quickly become one of my favorites and it also makes for a great gift. So go to bedraddy.com, check out the monogram polo and uh, there are other stuff on the site as well. And now back to Jeff Ogilvy. Uh, what do you think of the the Xander thing? That's I don't know. I've got a few different thoughts on that. I mean, I think they should clearly test drivers every now and then. But I think they should test every driver that's going to end up in a tour player's bag. They should test before TaylorMade or Callaway or Titleist or anyone puts it in a player's hands, so it knows it's a it's a legit good safe driver before a player even gets it in his hands i think that's what should happen but uh, i think the owners should be on the manufacturer a little bit and the us and the rna and usga for not testing uh pretty tough to test on a monday of a tournament you know of a major see but that's that's the thing is like every other every other sport that plays for millions of dollars that uses equipment that equipment's tested like, you know, like NASCAR. The cars are tested before and after every race. You know, mm-hmm. for cycling, the, the bikes are weighed before and after every race. Like, to me, like, with how much money's at stake and the fact that you wouldn't be able to tell, like, by, the, by looking at a driver, you have no clue if it's conforming or not. The, the tests have to happen right before the first tee. Well... But how impractical is that? I mean, you're going to tell a guy that he can't use his driver that he just warmed up with? I shouldn't. Be. I mean, I don't think you'll have any non-conforming drivers then. But I think the owner should be. I think 100. percent I think you should test, but I don't think it should be anything to do with a player. I think it should be through the manufacturer because that's I, it's complete trust from a player. And I don't. I'm pretty sure Callaway didn't mean to give him a driver that was like that. I mean, they build him close to the edge. And there's tolerances either way, and it, it probably happens on one out of twenty drivers that they do that, right? Or I hope something like that. Well, they I have guess to test them. They can wear. They can wear to where they're over too. So if you hit a bunch of times well, then it goes over. I've heard that too. Yeah. Well, I think the onus should be on the manufacturer because I think there's complete trust from the player that what his manufacturer is giving him is kosher. You know. Um, and if they'd gone to all the manufacturers is right, that we're just going to constantly test it. We're going to come in every week and we're going to, you got to bring in, I don't know, all the drivers that are going to end up on the range. They just go through this test and we just make sure it never, it can never even happen from the start, you know, and maybe you test everyone's clubs once they go through bag storage or everyone drops their clubs off once a month or something and they check the driver or something. I don't know. But Tuesday or Monday, Tuesday, have a major to find you don't have your driver. That's a bit unfair because it's not his fault. It's 100% not his fault. He had no clue. It's not no player in the history of the world is going to say, hey, can you test my driver? I think it's illegal. You know, J- JT said that he, he did that. Really? Recently. Well, interesting. Okay. Well, that's cool. I've never found that. I've never hit a driver. I've just gone, wow, how could this go? I'm not going to ask any questions well, about this one. This one. I, I know. That's, I mean, I think that's like the thing is like, I, uh, I think about it and it's like, I don't, it just seems like something that 
it's got to be tested. There's 10, 10, 10 million plus dollar purses out there. I certainly think you have to test, but I think there's a better way to have it done than the way they did. And I don't know this 30 test. Why can't you test them all? Like if you're going to test, you might as well test them all. The test takes like 20 seconds. So maybe at some point in your registration process, when you register, when you're, because those majors or these tournaments, there's a process to registering. Sometimes it might take five or 10 minutes. You come, you register with your bag. They take your bag out the back. They bounce the ball off the face and they go, right, you're good. Off you go. I don't know. Maybe that's how you do it. But I do think the owners should be on the manufacturer. I really do. Because we technically don't own our golf clubs. The manufacturers do. We're just borrowing them from them. You know, um, we are using what they want us to use. That's, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. I don't think any manufacturers are intended are intending to get illegal stuff in people's hands, but it happens. Like you say, they can wear out and stuff can happen, but I think it's the onus is on them because we're, we are like, um, crash test dummies for their clubs in a way, or we're mannequins for their clubs. So we, uh, I think the owner should be on them. So, so in cycling, there's, there's, there's bikers that are putting motors in their bikes. And these are these tiny little motors. Yeah, tiny. They don't help you really unless you're going up a hill. And these little motors can go make you go one mile an hour faster for short periods of time. But in a three-week race, it makes this huge difference. And it's been like an epidemic in there. They're using like thermal cameras, but like to the naked eye, nobody would ever know. So like here, like, you know... While you view it this way, there could be some like that's where I think like the testing it it has to happen because like you you know there's always a bad apple. There is, but look, you're comparing cycling, which is a sport that historically people have been quite happy to try to break <laughs> yeah, the rules. True. <laughs> I mean, they asked Eddie Merckx, "Could you win the Tour de France without drugs?" Eddie Merckx won five right in the sixties and seventies. He was a hero. Could you win um, the Tour de France without drugs? He goes, why would you want to? <laughs> that was his answer. I mean, I, it's been in that sport forever. It's just part of the sport to get away with one. I mean, I think it's bizarre they're putting motors in their bikes. But golf's different. I mean, the difference in Xander's driver, the illegal one to the illegal one, would be half a yard or something. It would be so insignificant. I mean, obviously, you can make one that would go 50 yards further. Yeah. But it's people aren't. It's not like people are winning tournaments, obviously, because they've got illegal drivers, where that would be different in a bike race over three weeks. You really, if you are not riding as much as everyone else, that's a big difference. I'm not saying it's not important and you have a line in the sand, you've got to do it. I just think uh, no one, there's no intention here. No one's intending to do this. And and, the, and I think the reason Xana got so annoyed is because of that inference that he was kind of trying to cheat a little bit, which is completely false because... He would have had no clue that it was illegal. And if any guy on tour that I know knew they had an illegal driver, most would want to get it changed. Yeah, I think like, and I don't think this is about Xander. It's like my mm-hmm. my thinking is just like, you know, like what happened to him and the other guys that got like, whatever. Like it's the whole idea that we've that you got that the you guys play for ten million dollars. And there's no regular testing to me is absolutely insane. I think all any player, and I think every player wants it too. The players just want a level playing field. 
like um, there's precedent i mean back in the good old days guys used to hack saw their grooves out and do crazy stuff on their wedges i mean it's kind of happened and put grease on the face of the driver and like it's i mean this people have done this stuff but as i said the the, the equipment in the old days you'd go into your the pro shop or then your garage and like mess around with your clubs now you just go into this the laboratory on the range and they just give you a new club and you hit it you just it's trust you just how do you measure cor yourself you know you hit 10 drivers and one goes a bit better well that could be the shaft or your swing or that day or that one goes better or maybe it just matches you better how do you how are you supposed to know that that it's breaking the rule you know it's impossible for a player to work that out no i i agree with that i think it's obviously like you know like I don't. I would never have any clue what what my driver setup would be, and I don't think anybody like you can't. But like that's where yeah, it is trust and and but there just has to be testing. I think everybody probably should. It probably I is a the, wake up call. The players need to put their hand up and say yes, we're happy for you to test. But if you start testing, you have to test everybody. And I still think it should go through the manufacturer side of things. I really do. I think it would be best if no driver like that ever even made it into a bag. Like it was stopped before it got there. Yeah. It would be the best solution. It's you almost know, like somehow. If, if they could figure out how much like you could potentially wear it, you know, like say you use a driver for two years and it wears, then saying like, okay, if it's at this limit, like you can't put it in there because it's going to go over in two years. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Have you ever used a driver for two years? I'm sure I did in the old days, but like the the more the technology is moving, the faster you change. Well, Titleist product cycle is two years generally, so I generally use Titleist products for two years. But I would probably not use. I've generally in that two year period of the same head, I've used a different loft or different shaft or cut half an inch off or changed the weighting around. I mean, I'd never keep it the same for two years. But it, I wouldn't have used the same head. No. This whole thing's kind of kind of funny for me. I uh, I've got this driver that my buddy, who's on the web, gave me. So it's out of a, it's a tour van driver, and it's funny because I've I've had the same guy fit me for clubs for like twelve years, and I went in to get a new new driver, and he I hit it, and then he had me hitting all the new stuff, and he's like, "You would be absolutely insane to switch from this driver." And it's like a 2016, 2015 driver. Oh, really? Yeah. But I think Why it's just because it's, I, well, I think it's, it, it was going as far, you know, if not further and way straighter than everything else. Yeah. Wow. Driver is a very important club. Certainly, if you have a rule, you have to police the rule. They're just going to find a better way to do it than they did because it didn't, it, it was just, Bad for everyone, right? The way it came down. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and nobody it, looked good. No, it'd be better to... Yeah. No one looked good. They should have just tested everybody. That's like the the logical thing. Yeah. And what did they have? Four out of 30? Four. Not pass. That's quite a high... That's quite a lot. I mean, so you would have had 20 or so in the field, which is pretty significant, which is actually shows that there's an issue, right? If you had tested 30 and you got four of them, that's what I, that's what I was kind of thinking with it is like if if it had been one, you know, you could say oh blah blah blah, but 
thirteen percent is is a big number. Yeah, it is. It means there's just twenty or so in the field, which would be uh clearly it needs to be tested. But I'm I mean I'm a bit maybe I'm naive about this sort of stuff. There has to be a black and white rule in the sand, but I bet you Xander didn't drive it any shorter or any different. No, he, you know. Yeah, that I mean, that's the thing. It's like if it's just one over, it's not a big deal, but it it kind of is a big deal because like the, for the guy that's five under, you know. Well, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a false start in a running race. I mean, it might only be a hundredth of a second, but it's all it's important, right? So it's I mean, it's important. If you have a line in the sand, you actually have to make sure everyone's on the one side of it. But it's one of the, it's a weird situation in the sport at the moment. It's like there's there's no intent by anybody because the man of the tolerances are so they're going right up against the line. They're not they're they're trying to make it legal and they make five thousand of them or five million of them and a few of them are going to fall on the other side of the line because there's manufacturing tolerances and they end up in tour bags and it's going to happen. Nobody's trying to do it. It just happens, right? So there's got to be a way of catching it before it gets to that kind of player getting called out, manufacturer getting called out, RNA getting called out, like everyone kind of lost out of that exchange, but it could be done where everybody, no one even knew it happened, but everyone just was comfortable that everyone's clubs were legit. I mean, that would be that situation, right? That's the thing is that I think as a competitor, as a, if you like, you should want this. Again, I mean, you do want it, but I also like, Whatever. I've always been like, if people want to do that, they're going to get found out. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't stress about stuff like that. But you're right. If you play for this much money, it's this important. And, but golf's always had that spirit of, you know what, there's probably a few guys who try to push the envelope, but most guys, the, the thing that Xander seemed to hate the most was someone joking that he cheated. Like, that really freaks a golfer out when he hears that. Like, any situation that puts him in that position is not really fair because it it had nothing to do with him, really. I don't think. I just don't know how he could have known that it was illegal. Yeah, I, I I agree with that because like that that's a brutal situation to be in, especially when like you're trying to win a major championship and you got your peers saying like even if they're joking, it's just like well, you could onus on the players and say, hey, look, the manufacturers will come up with their own testing device to have on tour. And it's like, if you get a driver you think is extra special, boy, and you and you really want to be confident, you can take it out on tour, come in back into our van, we'll show you on the machine. See, it's passes go. You know, maybe the onus could be on the player, but in that situation, you know what I mean? Like a pre, a pre-measure, and the manufacturer just won't let that driver go back out of the van. Well, see, it, but that's the, the, the manufacturer is the one that to me has the least straight intentions here. Yeah. Well, they, they clearly are quite happy to have drivers that go a long way. out. Exactly. So like, to me, like the manufacturer, it's, it's the governing body, the PGA tour and the player are the three player people that have, you know, have aligned interests here. And the manufacturer is the one that doesn't. They, they're the only ones who could, who have the technology and the means to like logistically like make sure players don't get illegal ones though, you know, maybe they get, maybe they get fined. If a player that plays their equipment, it comes out of their van, that happens. They get fined. See that, that would be, I think the right way. 
So, like, in this situation, Callaway get fined because they have put an illegal driver in play. I really don't think – I mean, I'm a player, and I know I'm trying to say it's not the player's fault, but it really isn't. Like, maybe the owners should be on us, and maybe more players will go check now, you know, because of this. Guys will be, oh, my driver's a bit special. I better go check this before I, that happens to me. So it might be good in that respect, but I think the manufacturer should get fined because I think they have the capability and wherewithal to test drivers before they put them in players' hands and just to make sure drivers like that just don't get in players' hands and test them period and test them periodically when they do the regrips every six weeks for the boys or whatever because guys will get their regrips four or five times a year and they leave their bag there and they go have lunch and they come back and the lilofs when you do that you test the woods and if they pass good if they don't. You talk to your man, you say, look, you got to get a new driver. This one's not going to pass anymore. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Cause like what everybody's saying now is that, is that three woods are even worse because well, there's people, no, keep them in the bag. The COR. Yeah. They don't test the COR on the, there's no, I don't believe there is a COR rule, the same COR rule on a three wood as a driver, but they don't have a test for the three wood or something. Something like that. Three woods go nuclear now. They're so long. I would, there's a hundred percent. There's, woods that are bouncing all over the place but i don't think there's anything in the rules of golf that it either doesn't allow you to test them or there isn't a cor rule on a three wood one or the other i don't know but it's a weird it's a weird area of the rules that all right let's let's move on we don't need to talk about this yeah. anymore um but uh so we got we got fedex cup coming up um i'm curious your take as, as a player who played before and after what are your thoughts on the playoff system Firstly, this scheduling, playing that tournament they played last week and now playing in Memphis this week, <laughs> that's, a big, that, that's a big ask for a lot of reasons. Um, Memphis has always been a great tournament, a great venue, but it's really, really hot. Um, and it's at WGC, so it's the real deal, the week after the real deal, like back-to-back. It feels like they've had a bit of a relentless run here. And Ireland, Northern Ireland to Memphis is a bit of a mission. Um that aside, the FedEx Cup, I like it. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's been really good. Um, I think we've generally had really cool champions. Eventually, one of the better players of the year has won the whole thing, so it seems to find a really good player. I don't know. I think you, you can argue up and down whether it's volatile enough or not volatile enough, but there was, they there was probably four new. Four tournaments that were five, six million dollar tournaments all of a sudden turned into eight million dollar tournaments with the FedEx Cup. And to me, that was great just for a player's perspective. There's just more money to play for, which is really the point of a professional golfer. After the prestige of winning all the tournaments and stuff, I mean, the point of being a pro is to pile up cash, especially at the end of the year. And there was another opportunity to do that. So I kind of like them. Yes, it's to play golf all the time and never have to work. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the that WGC. So next year they go Open WGC Olympics. Yeah, I think the, there'll be a bit of attrition in the WGC field. I would think um, maybe not a lot because the Olympics doesn't capture the whole golf world, right? I mean, it's just a couple from each country. Um, but that's a long run. Japan, like Britain to Memphis to Tokyo, it's putting some miles in the miles on the plane. Whoever does that is a true Iron Man. You know? I mean, that's like, legendary. That would be absolutely legendary. There'll be guys who do it 100%. <laughs> it 
It's, uh, there probably won't be many. There probably won't be that many who are in all three. Oh, there will be actually a few who will be in all three because they're top 50 in the world, guys. Anyway, I think the playoffs are great. I think it's they're smart finishing it before football. Um, I think it's it's uh, it just shows you that there's just really is a lot of quality events and like where do you put them all? You know, there's just a lot of tournaments that are really good. And we start in January and we have good tournaments most weeks all the way through to September and we're and we're telling everyone it's too compressed and there's too many good tournaments. It's like, well, what do you want us to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> lots of people want to sponsor tournaments and put tournaments on. It's a good thing running out of dates, you know? Yeah. What, but it's tough for the players. So one one thought I've had just recently is, is what, what if less guys made the playoffs? And since, like, golf's struggle has always seemingly been that they, like, weighing season-long performance appropriately in the playoffs, right? So that, you know, number 120 isn't going to win the FedEx Cup, you know, pu- the whole thing after having, you know, pretty mediocre year. So what if, like, only 48 guys made it? And, it, like, every other sport, everybody in the playoffs is on a level ground. It's the constant debate. I mean, I was on the the pack, the player advisory committee for a lot of the period when we were doing the FedEx Cup and it was coming and all the different little kind of adjustments they made in points and format and stuff. And it's half the people want pure playoffs, start at zero. Half the people want like no change. They just want to be rewarded for their whole year. Like it's a really, you're never going to please everybody with it. I think the word playoffs was the wrong word. Because then everybody expects like um, kind of knockout football, basketball style playoffs. Because golf really is your body of work is kind of to be respected more than a four round tournament. You know, like Tiger's body of work. I mean, it's not only the wins, but it's like second, third, fourth, always in the top 10. Ricky Fowler's body of work in the majors is very important. And it's harder to do that it's harder to play 30 tournaments consistently well than it is to play two you know so that's the spirit in that people want to recognize the the whole year but there's also the for for the excitement purposes of the of the actual tournaments and to make them bigger more exciting tournaments more volatility would be better so it's that it's a debate and i don't know what's right you know as i said they kind of they didn't really choose either direction, volatility or looking after the thing. They'd kind of walk the tightrope in the middle and they've always tried to keep it there, you know. I don't know. I like them. This year will be interesting because the format's bizarre this year. So um, bizarre. It'll be. It'll take people to get time to get used to. Like starting off at a different – a tournament where you start off at a different score. That's pretty amazing. But the, <laughs> you start 10 under, I think. Is that the guy who's leading? <laughs> and the next crazy. guy's 8 under it. Yeah, it's kind of weird that you're ten shots behind on the first tee for half the field. You, did you? But did you hear that? They showed us all the numbers. They showed us that they ran through historically the last ten tour championships, and they showed us how it all would have worked out. And it all would have kind of worked out similarly, weirdly enough. Like it's, but that doesn't take into account the guy. It, they're going to be on the first tee in a different headspace now because of their starting score. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. The uh, the OWGR board for the world rankings is uh wouldn't take the net event so their 
the result. So your your official world golf ranking points will come from a traditional seventy two hole championship, which is nonsense, right? Because, um, what's well, nonsense both ways? It's nonsense because you're playing in a different headspace. If you start ten behind, your your head is in a different. You're putting different swings on it. And you're feeling different and making different decisions and playing a different seventy two holes than you would if you started the same. You just are. So that's interesting. It's, I don't know. It's like, do you play for the play for the world world golf ranking points? Like winning the tour championship. That's it's a big number that's going into your OWGR. And like, if you're anywhere near a, a major cut line, that's gonna you know get you in or get you out. Or do you go for the FedEx Cup? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Are they gonna know on the course? Are they gonna know if they were leading the actual? no handicap event I don't, I don't think so i can't imagine them putting two scoreboards up and they won't if that's just a world golf ranking thing that they won't put it on tv that'll be like they'll try to make that not be an issue i don't know i think it'll be interesting i don't know it's look i mean when rory won he held that shot it was amazing and like tiger won a couple of times and like all the finishes of those fedex cups have been great i do think there is a part of there is a lot of people who would love to see it come down to I don't know what if you have a group of four on the last round that's for the ten and they start at zero on the first tee on Sunday you know what I mean you somehow get to that you somehow get to everyone gets their retirement plans and all that and you play the seventy two hole tournament and someone's a tour champion and then the next day you finish it on Saturday and then the next day Sunday you have the top four or the top eight. We're all starting at even. Best score today wins 10. Go, boys. That would be TV. See, that would be really cool TV. But, again, people are like, well, I, I led the money list all year and I won seven times and I'm not in the $10 million thing. That's not fair. Like, well, you won seven times, mate. You've got a bit of money, you know, I think. But um, there's a feeling amongst players. Some of, most of the players will be like, well, that isn't fair. But it's just as fair as anything else, right? I mean, you can hand out money however you want. Um, it would be cool, though. It would be like a Super Bowl of golf. You have four or eight guys starting at zero playing. But even if you split it, maybe you had five for the winner of the Tour Championship and you just had five for the playoff or something. I don't know. Did, did they ever, in the in the PAC meetings, did you guys ever talk about uh, match play? Uh, I think it was thrown out there a little bit, but it's just, I don't think it's 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 just been given up by the like a powers of B match play because it just doesn't seem to work. Even though I think it could in the right setting. Yeah, one idea I had last year in my head was that you you do a match play, but you you do it for every single spot in one through thirty two. So like on the last day, you have like a a you know an a seven versus eight match you know, for seventh and eighth and it's worth 300 grand. Yeah. Yeah. You could do that. Cause that would be that. super cool. And then you get, you know, cause the, the, the beef against match play is like, well, Sunday sucks. There's only two guys on the golf course. Well, you'd have all 32 guys on. So you just, you, it's not a knockout match play. You only progress to the final if you win, but when you lose, you just play the guy you have to play next for your position or whatever. Yeah, you okay. just play, yeah, you play out all 32 spots. Maybe. I think that would be uh, really cool. I like the idea of match play. I mean, it'd be kind of cool. 
I kind of like the idea of the old shootout. Remember the old shootout? You'd have nine people on the first tee and you'd lose a whole player on every hole kind of thing. Yeah. But you could do that over a whole week and maybe lose of the 30, you lose five a day or something and you get down to Sunday and you've got 10 and you get after nine holes and you lose 10 after nine holes. and Or maybe you get down to nine guys and you just shoot out the last nine holes. I mean, something <laughs> crazy. Like, I mean, can you imagine? And it would make um, us, that format would make it relatable because so many people play that in a club event. Yeah, like it's the member guest decider or stuff like that in some places. I don't know. I just think um, we're an entertainment product at the end of the day. And I think as long as everyone gets like rewarded in exemption and financial for their success, it would be great attention for the game if you could create one of those things that you could. Oh, my God, did you know there's this Tiger and Rory and Brooks and Dustin are playing for $10 million today. You've got to watch that. Can you imagine? Like. Yeah, crazy. Well, I mean that that was like the the thing with the the match. Um, I won't. I'll never forget. I I went. I I watched the match, and I went out to the bar and like to meet a couple of my buddies, and they they are not golf fans at all. And they were like, "What? Hey, how was the match? Who won the match? Who won the match?" It's because the it's so compelling when a few big names play for a big dollar amount, and it's easy to understand for them. It would be look. I think there's a, there's a big part of Ponovedra that would love that, but unfortunately, or well not unfortunately, fortunately in most cases that it's a players' organisation and everything has to kind of go to a vote, and um, you're going to get the cross section of opinions, and generally the average one you end up with kind of the the one in the middle that doesn't offend too many people and keeps everybody happy. You know, that's just the way it works. I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty good. It could be way better. I mean, way more exciting. But I think it kind of it balances out. As I said, I think it balances out that kind of rewards your year. It's if you have a really great year, it's kind of hard to miss East Lake. I mean, you can, you can, but it's difficult. Um, and if you finish 120th for the year, it's quite difficult to make East Lake. See, that's um, where I think where the the current format. I think it, like my my opinion on this has changed since we started talking. It's like. The format where where you take the big risk is the last one because everybody that gets there is rewarded and has had a great year or playoff run to get there. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So that's yeah, where you take the risk. Yeah. And the top 30, I think once you've gotten the top 30, you've got your master start, you've got your major starts, you're, you're locked up, you've got your extra money. Like top thirty is a great year, whatever happens. You know, regardless of who you are, finishing in the top thirty, it's always everyone on tour is happy when they make the tour championship. Yeah, you could probably get a little bit more aggressive in the last event, but they've tried to do that this year. They've they know that just a straight seventy two hole stroke play with like that points kind of setup wasn't working exactly how they wanted. So they've changed. I actually think they're doing all right because they're trying a few different things without like if they go too aggressive and it's a disaster. You know that's kind of risky, right? They've got a pretty good thing what they've got, so yeah. It's this will be interesting. This is a weird one. This is weird. It's like people starting off a seventy-two tournament on different scores, like handicap golf in pros kind of thing. Like different. It's definitely the leader I mean, of the money list has a ten-shot lead over other guys. That's crazy. You definitely have to applaud them for doing. They're doing something drastically different. Yeah, and look, this all these things that they do, they have 
numbers and stats guys who run every single possible scenario and they end up with um it works then as i said they they laid this um they showed us all the numbers they laid this format down on top of if this if we'd started all the last previous 10 of these like this this is how they would have gone and they kind of went the right way every single one of them like statistically now i know you can't really do that because no one was playing it with that mindset but statistically they they come up with a model that the numbers tell them will work yeah so we'll see yeah like my big beef with it is like last year we wouldn't have gotten tiger's win tiger wouldn't have won justin rose would have won and that that's like sad it's going to be interesting to see if by sun. See, on Thursday it's going to be odd, right? Because everyone's going to be on different scores. But by Sunday, it will have shaken out, and everyone's in the. It's a level playing field after you've started, right? Like, and if the guy who started off number one is having a bad week, or he's having a great week, like you, on Sunday, is everyone going to remember that we started like that, or is it just going to be for? Is it just going to be eight in whole Sunday again? You know? Yeah, the guy. The guy that's thirty is going to feel like he pumped three ob on the first tee. Yeah, he's like ten back. Like, how's that? Ten back on the first. But if he, if but if fifty four holes later, like the whole thing shapes out and everyone kind of balances out, and we just have a normal leaderboard on Sunday, then um, people might forget that there was kind of a handicapping at the start. I and I don't think you should be able to call like whoever wins the tour champion. No, that was the big argument from the pack. The big argument from the pack was if the guy who shoots the 72 lower shots for that week should win the tour championship. You know, you shouldn't be able to win a tour event based on something you did in a different event, you know, or other events. Yeah. And the tour events, a three is the tour championships, three year exemption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I think it's three it used to be five. I think it's three. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, that's the, the thing. Um, it's certainly. Certainly, see that I think another one of the things that's kind of held them back from maybe being a bit more aggressive is the fact that the Tour Championship is such a historic event, and they want the Tour Championship to be the Tour Championship and not kind of mess up that tradition. And if you start getting weird with match plays and knockouts and shootouts, and um, it's not the Tour Championship anymore. And I, it's they've got the players, the Tour Championship, the Tournament of Champions. You know, they've got that kind of higher level of event that. They like to that have been historic and been around a long time. They kind of like to preserve that, so that kind of holds them back too. But this one's a bit weird. You're right. I mean, how do you become tour championship if you started in front of someone else? But they beat you for the 72 holes, but you beat them for the trophy. A bit weird. Yeah, like it's like any normal. It's like a club comp though. <laughs> it's like the member guest. Yeah, it's just crazy because like you could have Jordan Spieth who gets into the tour. Like you know, he's like 70th in FedEx Cup right now. I think. But uh, he gets into the tournament. He's you know thirtieth on that on that num- He gets in on the number, and he when he beats say it's uh, I don't know say it's Brooks. He beats Brooks by eight shots the week, and Brooks is the tour champion. Yeah, it's there's crazy. something wrong with that. Yeah, but again, they ran all these numbers, and they don't think that was going to happen. So anyway, we'll see. That's uh, but. Oh, I mean, maybe it'll go well. It, it's definitely a bit. If it doesn't go well, it'll it'll change quickly. Is my guess. Um, yeah, I think I think the one. To be honest, I think the FedEx Cup is going to be strong for a while, and I think they kind of know what they're doing. This WGC they're playing this week has uh, 
is going to be fraught with issues for a while, you know, especially if they're going to back it up after the Open. Um, that's it. And, and look, as I said before, you're just playing golf for a living. It's not a real job. It's all good. But you're not going to get the performance out of guys after they've just got battered around Portrush for four days. They're going to fly to 100, 100 and 100 in Memphis. And they're just heads. A lot of their heads are just not going to be in the game, you know? Yeah. And it's you're just not going to get the performance. I mean, it's, look, you're paying these guys a lot of money, and I don't think it's fair that they whine and say, don't give me $10 million this week. Give it to me next week. Well, yeah, give me a, I've got to sit on the beach for a week. I don't buy that argument at all. But you're not going to get the performance out of guys because they're going to be jaded and flat. You know, that's what I feel. Maybe not, but especially at the end of this summer. I mean, a lot of these guys might have played eight of the last 10 weeks, and four of them were majors. And, now they've got a WGC and they've got to take one week off and play FedEx Cup playoffs and stuff. And next year, the Olympics. I mean, it's just, it's pretty relentless. And you end up, the standard of golf will go down. That's, that's not, don't, I don't think it matters about us players being precious and getting tired. That's on us. We chose this job. But the standard of golf will go down if you overplay these guys in big tournaments. And, and they'll start pulling out of these WGCs because they'll prioritize other things, you know. Well, I mean, it's. I think having traveled a lot for work before I started this, and I travel a lot for this, is like, you know, when when you travel like four straight weeks for your job, it's not enjoyable, and like it takes like a toll on you, and you definitely like even as an office worker job, like you're you're not gonna work as well as if you're well rested and at home. No, that's the thing to me. I mean. And everyone, like everybody, grinds at their job and like has parts of it they don't love. But like, it's kind of you want people to do it well when they do it, right? That's the thing. I mean, maybe this will change how they train. Maybe there'll be attrition. Maybe there'll be less people play earlier in the year. Maybe that run there'll be more people pull out of some tournaments in May, like between the Masters and the U.S. Open. May take more time off in that period. Maybe more guys will not play between the two Opens. Um, you'll get attrition somewhere else or you'll just get the standard of golf going down. And that's when you get guys getting headless and snapping clubs over their knees and stuff like that, really, because they're just like twisted because they've been in four different countries in three weeks. Like it's tough. Mm-hmm. What, uh, but, and you're adjusting time zones. Yeah. There's a lot of money, but time. yeah, I mean, and climates, Port Rush, I mean, Northern Ireland to Memphis. I can't <laughs> emphasize enough how big a climate change that is. I mean, that is, <laughs> 50 degrees of climate, uh, global warming in a week. (laughs) The Swap Ass Invitational. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's a cool course. It's a good course. And it's a great, like, it's a great, it's always been a good community. They love it because it supports the hospital. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with FedEx having their tournament there. I just think it's the wrong date. Somehow, I don't know if they have a date. It'd be good in the spring, you know? Put it in the spring. When when we used to play Memphis, uh, way back when it was the week before the u.s open it was already too hot yeah if you could bang it in this but when do you put it in the spring you got the you got the pga there now you got memorial you got colonial you got the nelson you got i mean you got good stuff everywhere now like it's i'll give it to the tour that tournament the tour is getting deeper and stronger and more good tournaments i mean it's pretty amazing that's uh i think well i'm curious i've i've been doing a bunch of research on like the forming of the wgc's did you play in the match play at Metropolitan the one year they had it there? No, that went down about nearly went to a hundredth in the world. 
Um, so top 64, and normally it goes to what 65, right? Someone's injured or someone's wife's having a baby or something, and like number 65 gets in. That year it was like 98 got in because no one wanted to go down. And uh, did Pierre Fulke got to the final? Did Pierre Fulke win that? Steve Stricker beat Fulke in the final or something? Is that right? I don't what have that in front of me. That's it. I mean, I the whole intention. I didn't play. That was early days. Yeah, I wasn't in that. The whole intention of the WGC to me, like. And and this is like a perfect example of it. Like you're going to Memphis for a world golf championship right after you played in Northern Ireland. It doesn't make much sense, you know? And like the whole intention, like I've been reading about Norman and his world tour and all what he wanted and how the idea kind of spawned from that. And it just seems so, such a far, you know, and I know FedEx is the biggest sponsor. So, you know, they got to take care of them, but this is the furthest thing from what was intended when the World Golf Championships started. It is. And look, the, t- the, the idea was let's get the top 50 or the top 100 guys in the world or that echelon of players together more often around the world. Like, that's the spirit of it. But they, I mean, the conspiracy theorists would say when they put it outside of America, they put it... The four, they put the match play in Australia, so it just wouldn't work. And it was like the first week in January or something, so nobody wanted to go. And they like they just kind of made it so it ended up just bigger versions of US, regular tour events. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard, though. I mean, as I said, because it's like it's the only way it really works is if you create a layer of tournaments above the normal ones. Um and that's just fraught with so many complicated situations and exemptions and egos and sponsors. And now sponsors are like, well, why don't I? Uh, why don't we get the three-year exemption for our tournament? We only get the two-year exemption. We put almost as much money in as them. And it's just, it really, it's a can of worms. So it's just ended up being regular tour events, really. Um, although, be it that we're in Mexico City, which is pretty good. That's a cool. That's what it's about, right? That that one is actually great. I think. Um, I don't know. It's a difficult thing. And this, there's I philosophically obviously everybody thinks it'd be great to have 10 or 12 tournaments around the world really high-end tournaments you know tournaments like memorial or like what akron used to be riviera places like like this the the really premium to the wentworth tournament in the uk i mean the australian open like maybe the japan open i mean it'd be brilliant to have like that kind of tennessee kind of feel about the big events but you've got to align so many people and so much stuff and just to get all that worked out and you're putting players' noses out of joint and sponsors' noses out of joint and golf. You got to, you got to connect the golf associations with the professional association. I mean, it's just it's logistically or like just doesn't happen. But yeah, the other tough thing is the it, if you're going to Australia or Japan, it's like a it's like a three week trip essentially. Kind of yeah, it's a big, it is a big trip, and it's like. This is a perfect example. Like this schedule, they've had two weeks. Port Rush to Memphis. That, if you have that regularly, guys are just not going to do it. The, the the regular tour is just too good. You can live in Florida or Arizona or Texas. You can go three hours from your home twenty five times a year and play for eight million bucks or seven million bucks. I mean, why am I going to Japan? You know what I mean? Why am I going to Australia? Like you just why would you? Like you wouldn't. Um, because it's too it's too good. Like whereas the LPGA, those girls travel. They go everywhere because they kind of have to, right? They got to play. When there's a tournament on, they go play. We've got choices. We've got lots of. If I don't play this week in in Japan, I'll just play next week in 
Greensboro or something. You know what I mean? It's like there's there's too many good tournaments in the US, which is a great thing, <laughs> which is actually a testament to the tour, but that just makes it hard because to get to a level above that, it takes a lot of money and a lot of organization. There's still people who are trying to do it though. There's still there's there's pirate organizations out there who are trying to like capture a world tour. It's really hard to it's really hard to pull off. Yeah, it would be cool. But yeah, and the the problem, the other thing that you run into is if you succeed and you get that, every other smaller tour event suffers. That's the problem, right? That's the problem with these um, other other events suffer. Nobody watches Reno this week, right? Like, they never have. It's a great Just tournament. Speak for I mean, yourself, you know? I love Reno, right? <laughs> I won there. I think it's a mint play. It's one of my favorite tournaments of the whole PGA Tour for, like, the course, the venue, how cruisy the week is, how nice the weather is. Um, but when the top 50 are playing somewhere else, most people are going to watch that. So if you have that, if you don't want to get rid of events, which is kind of unfair on the rank and file guys, you know, um, and just have WGCs eight weeks a year around the world and have no tournaments that same week, that's not right, is it? Yeah. It's, I don't it's, know. It's a, it's a hard one. It's a really hard one. It's a good question too. It's like, it's like, could could you survive could the could the pga tour and web tour become like the bottom and top half become more flexible and then you have these elevated events once a month or you know a little more than once a month already do i thought an interesting idea would be to make the web or the corn ferry tour and the pga tour like everybody's got the same exemption from number one down brooks is number one number 125 and the money is 125 then you get the 50 in from the web or whatever but everybody's got a number down to about four or five hundred in your exemption and you have two events every week just like this week we have memphis and reno every week you have they're all pga tour events the corn ferry tour is now just the pga tour everything is a pga tour and you just have tier one and tier two events you know maybe you have premium tier events and you can have multiple events in a week that and then you might get some web, traditional web corn fairy type sponsors who are ready to kind of step up their spend and like go from a $2 million tournament to a $4 million tournament because like that's, they've always wanted to. They don't really want to get to like the full PGA toilet, but they might want to go up a little bit, you know, and there might be some PGA tour events just like, you know what, I'd rather just, can I just back this off and just have like a little bit of a smaller event? And if you're in, you just have to play as a player. You have to play the event, the highest event that you're exempt into that week. And if you don't get into the WGC or the big one, you get into the one underneath, like what? this week. If you don't get into Memphis, you just go to Reno. And it you would have two events every. It would maybe. solve the issue of like, say you're a tour rookie or a guy that's low on the list, and you get a bad start to the year, and then all of a sudden you can't play for two months. Mm-hmm. That's like the thing that killed. And, and right now they're they're two. I was talking about this with uh, Brendan Porath uh, on the on the Shotgun Start. Is like if you right now they have s- same ownership, but they use two different currencies with points. Mm-hmm. Like the the tour owns five tours, all of which use a different currency. You could certainly combine the money lists or point lists, and just have bigger or smaller events and. 
the 125 line and all those sort of things would change, but there would be kind of like benchmark position. You still have FedEx Cup playoffs on that. And if you're 260th on the list, if you finish 260th on the list, well, you're just not going to get into those top 20 or 30 events, but you're going to get into the, the next 30 events and you've got a realistic and if you win a tier two event, you get a one-year exemption and all of a sudden you're up in the big ones. You win a tier one event, you get the two-year exemption. Like, I don't know. I think if you could combine them, maybe you could have a more interesting kind of – it would be a better deal for the guys down the bottom, like a better pathway up, and it would allow you room to create events on top of events you've already got. Yeah, you know? it would create like that free flow and it would let – like when somebody's struggling, they wouldn't – it would actually, I think, help the struggling PGA Tour player because he wouldn't, he would have somewhere to play. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it would really help. And then say, like this kid, Chris, uh, Christopher uh, Ventura, he just he's won two two web events in three weeks. Like he'd be playing up up high. Yeah, yeah, he would. And it, you know. And- and the guys who'd been struggling, who'd started with their card this year and who were really, really battling, I mean, they might be now not, they might be like drifting down and not getting into like some bigger ones. All right. It's an interesting, uh, I think, I think there's more room, the gap between the web, Corn Ferry, the Corn Ferry tour, money wise and exemption wise and all that, the gap between that and the PGA tour is too big. It's ridiculous. Like it's, a, it's a massive change. I mean, it's just, it's almost it's not a money losing proposition the the web but it's close i think know, it is a, it is a lo- money like the guy that makes this 25th like they're barely covering expenses you know that's borderline and that's not fair i just think there's more money and there's a little bit more money in golf than that and i think there'd be a way to create a better secondary tour which would allow you room to maybe put some really premium stuff on top of the big one you know i think it would be not that there isn't premium stuff, but you know that world too. You'd, you'd have a bit more room if you've got if every one of your members has got somewhere to play that week for a reasonable amount, then they don't really mind if the top fifty go off and make ten million somewhere else because they got three million to play for in like Chicago that week or whatever, you know. Um, and yeah. it, it, I don't know, just, maybe it's maybe well it's possible. The other thing is that now that the PGA Tour owns Canada and Latin America. It gives them like essentially a new funnel in. Mm-hmm. Like that's the the piece that they hadn't had for so many years was now that they now they own two more supplemental tours, and they own China. They own all the pathways to get on the PGA Tour, pretty much. But none of them yeah. allow for movement. Like they all operate in their own entity. The movement is difficult. Like it's a pretty. I mean. The Latin America and the Canadian tour, which, by the way, those guys can play. They're really good. They just haven't had an opportunity yet. And they're all young and they're all keen. I mean, it's top five for a whole a whole year gets a chance to play web.com. I mean, that's five on a money list. That's really high. That's So you can finish sixth on Canada, sixth on Latin America in a year, probably lose money for a year, and you've got nothing to show for it. Well, that's really. the, the thing is that, is that top five is just conditional too. It's not even full. Yeah, it's tough. It's I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we're 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 trying to we're, you're trying to if you you're trying to please the golf fan to give him great golf tournaments, but you're just trying to capture the the best way to 
have the most people have this job and enjoy it, right? And like, and and there's a lot of small markets. It's not just for the players. There's there's lots of small markets that just can't have PGA Tour events, but they could have a lower level to PGA Tour event, and they probably would. You know, I mean, how many great little four, five hundred, six hundred thousand people towns are there in America with good golf courses? They're everywhere. You know. Yeah, like, like Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's uh, I think you know, that, at the price at the price point of twelve million dollar ask, you can't do that in Cedar Rapids. But if it was a four million dollar ask or something, well, maybe you can. You know, I don't know. Like, yeah, maybe you can't. I don't know. I mean, there's much smarter people than us working on stuff like this. But yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we we've uh, we've covered you know all kinds of topics, and you know, uh, we're very off course, but. uh until uh, again, we got we got to talk Presidents Cup one of these days. You know, you're a, a yeah. Let's do it. Assistant captain. We got to hear what's going on with the with the international squad. Oh, the inside the squad. I don't know. My uh, role because I've been down here has been I've been going out to Royal a little bit, and I'm going to wander around Royal with a few of the long time Royal members and see if we can find some sneaky pins for our team. You know, that's kind of the program well you can't narrow Royal Melbourne down like you did Paris National and you can't grow rough but we might be able to create a local knowledge advantage if we can uh, kind of teach our guys how to play it quicker but I think Tiger's been there a bunch too everybody knows how to play the course so it'll be uh be fun everyone down here is excited about it I mean Melbourne people love golf tournaments they're like Chicago people right they just turn up to big events they just do so it's gonna be fun it's uh you know one one trick if if uh, Patrick Reed makes the team is uh, he always felt that the tour was conspiring against him by putting right pins on Sundays. <laughs> so they work out all the shot shapes from everyone and put all the pins on the wrong side for the American. Yeah, exactly. You know, just uh, just do that. Figure out figure out their alternate shot uh, teams and who's hitting the approach shots and move them around. Yeah, I mean it's we we need. To, our team needs to win this tournament soon. Otherwise, it's going to kind of get a bit boring. Um, but, yeah, it's fun to be involved with. Such such good fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. All right. Cheers, man. That was good.